0: It's true that technology, as a whole, I think supports kind of asymmetry, right? Nineteen guys with box cutters can hijack airplanes and throw the world into um, recession, and that that is something amplified by technology, right? If they if we lived in an era two hundred years ago, they wouldn't probably have been able to do anything like that, and so it is true that. Asymmetry is something that technology enhances. And it is true also, I think that there'll always be crazy people. Like, even, even when we have a, a fairer and juster world, there's always going to be, you know, a Timothy McVeigh come along and blow up, a, uh, you know, a building in Oklahoma. And, and so technology empowers those people to be able to do more. And that would seem to be discouraging. But I, I always just ask myself doesn't technology also empower people? people who are trying to do good just as much? And aren't there more of those people? So hopefully we have new ways to counter those and you, those asymmetric
1: threats. Hey guys, before we get started, I want to tell you about today's show sponsor, Carta. Carta simplifies how startups manage equity, track cap tables, and get valuations. Go to carta.com syndicate to get 10% off and learn more about how they can help you with managing your complicated cap table and keeping investors happy. I work from Starbucks and drink a ton of coffee and love saving money. That's why I love the Cash App, the debit card from Square with boosts that save me a dollar at coffee shops nationwide every time. No strings attached, no hidden fees. Seriously. People don't believe it until they try it. Then my mom tried it. She loved it. And you can get $5 free to fuel your caffeine addiction and save a dollar on every cup of coffee every time by going to disruptors.fm slash cash and signing up. I love the Cash App. And coffee, seriously, disruptors.fm slash cash to support us, support your fix, and save money on coffee. And now, let's get on with the program. Welcome to The Disruptors, the podcast about the future of all of us, where we look at the technologies, trends, and societal norms shaping our collective future. Hear the world's top minds, share their insights and predictions on the convergence, direction, and ethics of exponential technologies transforming life as we know it. You can learn more and stay up to date at disruptors.fm. What does it mean to be conscious? What does it mean to be alive, to be human? Where are we headed? We'll talk about this and much, much more. Today's an incredible episode. We've got GigaOM CEO Byron Reese on the program. He's the CEO and publisher at GigaOM, an industry-leading tech research company. He's also an award-winning author, speaker, and futurist. And he believes that technology will help bring about a new golden age of humanity. We're headed there, and we're talking about that today. He holds a number of technology patents, hosts two podcasts on artificial intelligence, give talks around the world to guests in excess of 100,000 on how technology is changing the future of work, education, and culture, and his newest book, The Fourth Age, Smart Robots, Conscious Computers, and the Future of Humanity tackles a lot of these same issues. He's also the author of Infinite Progress, How the Internet and Technology Will End Ignorance, Disease, Poverty, Hunger, and War. And Bloomberg Businessweek credits him with quietly really having pioneered a new breed of media company. Byron has been featured in hundreds of news outlets, including the New York Times, Washington Post, Entrepreneurial Magazine, USA Today, NPR. And he thinks that the biggest problems of tomorrow won't be the lack of jobs, but a shortage of humans to take advantage of all the opportunities The technology has to offer. That's just a sneak peek of what we'll be talking about today. We'll also cover why the world's fundamentally improving and why Byron's an optimistic realist. Yes, notice the realist. How AI will transform the labor market and economy, leading to better jobs. Why forecasting artificial general intelligence is just plain silly. And will AI become conscious? Why we're entering a fourth age of humanity and what the world looks like 25 years in the future by looking 25 years in the past. This episode was super fun to record. Byron is the consummate optimist. We had a lot of fun debating back and forth on the future nature of humanity, the big problems, the big solutions, and where we're headed. And I know that you guys are going to absolutely enjoy this one. When you do, consider leaving a review disruptors.fm slash iTunes. It helps us reach more folks with these conversations, which we think are incredibly important, and we hope you do too. You're here, so you probably do. If you want to support us and help us make this sustainable, we need to get up to around 50,000 listeners an episode by our estimation to be able to make this self-sustainable and to not be completely an economic suck on yours truly, the one who's funding this, then go to disruptors.fm slash iTunes. Leave us a review and share it around with your friends and family. If you want to support us in a little bit of a bigger way, if this is worth more than a cup of coffee a week to you, then consider supporting us on Patreon. Disruptors.fm slash Patreon. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N. Want a different way to support us? Not a problem. Disruptors.fm slash support. We're actually fiscally sponsored by a 501c3 nonprofit in the U.S., so it means if you make a donation to us, you can write that off. You don't have to send that money to Uncle Sam. Instead, you can help us try to build a better world together. Again, that's disruptors.fm slash support for more details. Before we get started, got a really quick announcement. The Disruptors is partnering up with Aubrey de Grey to offer you guys a free, limited-time, signed copy of Ending Aging, Aubrey's book. If you want to get a copy of that, you can enter into our sweepstakes. Just go to disruptors.fm slash aging. That's A-G-I-N-G. Aging, and you can register to win his book. There's a lot of different ways that you can enter and get more chances to win, from following us on Twitter to subscribing on YouTube and a whole bunch of other things that you can do. But if you're interested in getting a free signed copy of Aubrey's book, go to disruptors.fm slash aging and you can enter to win there. Aubrey was a really interesting guy. It was incredible having him on the podcast to be able to have one of the leading longevity researchers in the world. The giveaway will be running from January 29th to February 5th, so you have one week from the release of this podcast episode, essentially to enter, make sure that you do that and take action if you want to get this book signed from Aubrey himself, right to you. Again, that's disruptors.fm/aging for more details and how you can register. And of course, no purchase necessary. But what if you're listening to this after the sweepstakes has ended? Don't worry, we're actually partnering with a lot of the past authors on our podcasts to offer some free books for you guys. So while it may not be Aubrey's book, if you go to disruptors.fm/giveaway, whatever is the most recent giveaway that we're doing now, if there's one. That's currently running live, you can register to win right there. Again, that's disruptors.fm slash giveaway. And now let's get on with the episode. And without further ado, I give you Byron Reese. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things. Not because
0: they are easy, but because they are hard.
1: So I'm excited to have you on. I was listening to a few of your talk. I've looked into the book a little bit and I didn't know you as well. You're the CEO of GigaOM. You've been a busy, busy man. Can you give me a quick overview of how in God's name you got here?
0: Well, I've always been uh, you know, a startup guy, and uh, I had a couple that did pretty well. And when that happens, you get a lot of speaking uh, invitations. And good speakers, they do this thing where they give the same speech over and over. And I'm a bad speaker because I never give the same talk twice. And so every time I would get invited to something, I would write something completely new. And over time, those uh, started to feel like a book. And so I published a book, and then I rinsed and repeated again, and I'm working on a third one right now.
1: You seem like a bit of a bit of a hopeless optimist. I want to I want to dump into that a little bit. You seem like a I seem like a smart abundance focused guy. You what's your what's your outlook on life?
0: Well, that's a that's a broad question. I mean, I am an optimist. I would say it's not not a hopeless one because that would seem to imply that it's unreasoned. I am an optimist at present because it seems the most reasonable position, and I would say put. I guess I only kind of believe two things. One is that we discovered this trick a long time ago of technology to multiply what we're able to do. And so we can do more than before. You know, your body is 100 watts of power and that's all you have. But with technology, you multiply that and you you make it work a lot more. And so... Technology has this habit of it, of growing over time, perhaps forever. Uh, it, it will only it will only ever cap out if there's a limit to human knowledge, and I'm not sure that there is. And so that's the first part of what I think. And then the second part is that I think that people on the whole are good. More people want to build than destroy. I think we know that because I don't think we ever would have made it this far if most people wanted to destroy. And so if over time, technology empowers us and most people work for good, then that implies to me that someday we'll solve all technical problems. There are a lot of problems that aren't technical, don't get me wrong, but ones that are purely technical, and I think there's a lot of them, we'll live to see the end of.
1: How many of those technical problems are also social problems that have technological solutions?
0: I don't know. I don't know. That's a harder case. When I think of purely technical problems, I think of things like disease. You know, it doesn't have to be disease. We just haven't eliminated it. And we we beat the worst disease there ever was, smallpox, before we even knew uh, germ theory was a thing, before we even knew it was caused by germs. We defeated polio for all intents and purposes in an era of stone knives and bear skins, as it were. Like Jonas Hawk didn't have a computer or anything like that. And so you think about what we're able to you know, a pathogen has one trick. It says, I'm going to wait for a random mutation to occur and hope I'm better off. That's it. That's it. We, on the other hand, improve our technology on a regular basis. So, you 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 know, so I think hunger is just a technical problem. Poverty, I think, is a technical problem. And there are a lot of them. Maybe one that would fall into the camp, maybe war. I do think we'll live to see an end of organized warfare. If for no other reason than uh, it it will cease to be profitable for anybody. And if that was the case, then we wouldn't have war anymore and that that may be mostly technical in nature
1: i think societal as well you often see in the build up for war you often see t- it's just so much propaganda in terms of that what the newspapers are showing it's kind of gearing you up because Otherwise societies wouldn't be willing to do this ungodly thing of pure evil. How how do we how do we deal with deal with that? I know there's some theories in terms of warfare. It could just essentially be a simulated chess game, et cetera, in the future. Do you think we move more towards that?
0: Well, I get along with my neighbors of all races and creeds and nationalities. I don't, you know, go to war with them. Uh, in part, I think because they're humanized to me, they're people I know, and in part because we all kind of buy into the same system and we all are playing by the same rules. And then, and and there's there's a method for settling uh, disputes between us, a peaceful method. And because of that, we have peace. We you know we sleep largely at, at peace at night between nations. However, it, it, we don't have any of that yet. We don't have any higher authority to appeal to. We don't have any arbiter of right and wrong. Uh, we're still very much. Uh, and might makes right mode and the strong can can brutalize the weak uh, and, and and nations are abstract things they're not humanized and so uh, we used to i think probably when we were tribal interacted with each other very much the way that nations interact with each other now they're bellicose and all of the rest and, and so i think we one one method is if there was some method by which nations could there there aren't you know war, warfare is supposedly what happens when di- it's just an elevated form of diplomacy and it, it's when diplomacy runs out, you have war. What if there was a way that diplomacy, you know, didn't run out per se? I think it's a crime. I mean, I think it's a true crime. You think of 500 years of war, and I mean, yeah, I think it is, it is a crime against humanity.
1: Definitely, especially when you look at the incentives. I mean, we went to Iraq because of oil and because of military contracts, etc. It's a, it's a major problem. How do we use technology to humanize? Because you brought up something a little bit earlier as well, how we used to live in tribe. How do we humanize without creating the, the Facebook filter bubbles we seem to have today?
0: i really A book called Infinite Progress, and I had a section called uh, the End of War, and I gave 45 reasons that I think technology does is a force for peace. It um, a lot of it is social media. Uh, You you actually probably are more likely to know people outside of your own culture. I think a lot of it is that all the forms of communication now that we have, language barriers used to cause all kinds of problems, and those fall as more people as technology gets better. And so I think technology does a lot of things that will let us connect to each other better I'm I'm a I'm, I'm a, probably a contrarian about the filter bubble thing I don't I don't I, I think on net we're better off the way we get information now if you went back to um, the 80s even or the 70s or the 50s you had three channels you know choose uh, all all owned by large corporations and no one with any competing message could could get any kind of an audience. The cost of communication was so high, maybe you mimeographed newsletters and mailed them around or something, but we lived in real uh, information kind of bubbles. And now the world is at your, I'm probably exposed to more things I don't agree with than ever before. And I mean, that's great. I mean, you kind of waste time anytime you read something that you agree with already. You're like, yep, that's what I thought. And it's like, well, you're you're no better off than when you started
1: really. And not only that, I mean, The Harvey Weinsteins of the world were still there. We just didn't hear about it. So there was this complacency, this lack of transparency that made people feel safe. How do we we deal with that? I think this is an inherent flaw with humanity and technology. I think it applies in this situation. I think it applies in driverless cars. We can have however many hundreds of thousands of people dying every year from auto accidents that were preventable. And yet, The first or second uh, autonomous vehicle crash we have suddenly, holy shit, we gave power over to the machines. It was terrible. Everything is so much worse than it was. There's that amplifier effect when you think about positive and negative. So for instance, if someone gives you a compliment, it takes about five to 10 compliments to outweigh every negative. If I tell you your hair looks funny or your feet are smelly or something like that. I think it's very similar with technology. Things outside of our control that are negative have outsized consequences in our mind, even though they shouldn't.
0: Yeah, I, I believe that is true. There's something known as dark cloud syndrome, which is if you ask people, what are your likelihood of getting murdered? And what are the likelihood of your home being broken into? And, and all of these kind of bad things. People almost universally overestimate the odds of them happening because uh, you know the news by definition is the unusual. I mean, if it was the usual, it wouldn't be newsworthy, and so we do get kind of a constant dose of of negativity, which I think does alter our view of the world.
1: How do we change that? Because if we had a hundred-year news cycle, everything would be freaking awesome. So many things would be solved. So many advancements as humanity—we cured this, that, and the other—and we had like four wars on net. That's pretty damn good. But when you think about it in the short term, the it's inverted. How do we deal with that as a society? I think looking at the news is one of the worst things you can do for yourself. I don't know. I like that you say, I don't know. A lot of people try to come up with bullshit answers. And I like that you're very willing to admit when you don't know, admit when you're wrong. And I think that's something not enough people do. You, so you've got some you've got some really interesting perspectives. Well, thank in you. In terms of where where we're headed as a society and as a species. I believe in us. I think, how do we change that for people? We, we talked a little bit around this, but how do we change that when we kind of, it feels fragmented. How do we change what? Well, you kind of have your optimists and you have your pessimists and they're getting further and further apart. And realistically, the world's getting much, much better. Yet the pessimists and the separatists are gaining more and more power in politics. In I
0: different. don't know. I really don't. And I give that a lot of thought. Part of me on a good day, I say, it doesn't really matter in a sense I think the optimistic view of the world doesn't largely require people to be optimistic. If technology is this trick that teaches us how to feed the hungry and bring water to th- those uh, the thirsty and all of the rest, then th- there are a lot of market forces and and whatnot that bring that all about. And so, but then I think on the other hand, somebody's got to wake up in the morning and believe in a better tomorrow and be willing to work for it. And if everybody collectively gave up on it, that would be kind of the only thing that could really stop it. So I'm not sure it's important that everybody be optimist, but that there just be enough optimist to um to to get all the work done, I kind of think almost every viewpoint in society, and, and I don't I don't push this to any extreme, but it's like almost every viewpoint serves a role. And if we all agreed on anything, that's probably bad. You know, liberal people, and and I don't mean that politically, but just like um, you know, you 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 have conservative people who like things the way they are, and I, I, again, I'm not using the word in its political sense, and so they're quick to put on the brakes, and then you have liberal people who want to make things better, and they're quick to put on the gas, and and they each frustrate each other. But then you have to say, well, don't we kind of need them both In, in the grand scheme of things? Don't you want some people pushing the envelope and some people saying, you know, wait, let's stop and think about this? Don't you want some people to believe technology can solve so many problems and other people to be dubious of it? I mean, I, I almost think we need all of that to, uh, that's how we've always been. And that's and we've made progress with everybody kind of filling a role. And we don't really have to even understand what role that person or that viewpoint is fulfilling. But just know that over the long haul, through the, the cornucopia of opinions and the, the that are expressed by people, somehow humanity as a whole progresses. And so I guess I just think about that. I'm not really out to convert people that are pessimistic to being optimist. I am very interested in people who want to be optimists but don't really feel like, but don't feel like they have good facts. It's like optimism is almost kind of a childish, naive position to some. And I, I want to give people factual evidence to support it, but I'm not on a crusade to make everybody an optimist.
1: You're an optimistic realist. And I there think you that, go. Maybe that, so. That's the ideal. I think I think there's one danger in the in the analogy that you used, and that's assuming... That, so basically, throughout history, we've evolved and our systems have been dynamically stable and that's been good. There's been enough of this and not too much of Correct. that. And everything has progressed. But does that change when you get into an era where things become more exponential? and it's not the the control that the spikes become larger so one person has outsized power we have a president that can can blow up the world and seem seemingly is is nuts you you have other situations like that. Is it does it get dangerous? Have we evolved past? Has technology progressed past what we're evolved to handle?
0: It is true that technology as a whole, I think, supports kind of asymmetry, right? Nineteen guys with box cutters can hijack airplanes and throw the world into um, recession, and that that is something amplified by technology, right? If they if we lived in an era two hundred years ago, they wouldn't probably have been able to do anything like that, and so it is true that asymmetry is something that technology enhances and it is true also i think that there'll always be crazy people like even even when we have a, a fairer and juster world there's always going to be you know a Timothy McVeigh come along and blow up a uh, you know a building in Oklahoma and and so technology empowers those people to be able to do more and that would seem to be discouraging but I, I always just ask myself doesn't technology also empower people who are trying to do good just as much and aren't there more of those people so hopefully we have new ways to Counter those and you those asymmetric threats. I don't think we're necessarily any closer to. If you have to say when were we closest to some kind of like planet wide Armageddon, it was probably in the '60s, right? When you had uh, the Cuban Missile Crisis. You you know you had. I mean there so many. It's harrowing to read the stories of so many times we came so close to starting a nuclear war or being involved in one, and it doesn't feel like we're still there anymore,
1: but maybe I'm wrong. That, ho- that Hawaii accident we had, uh, we had a few months ago, that, right. got, that, was, that, one, that one would feel a little rough if you actually well, realized it in real time.
0: I can imagine, I can imagine, and I'm going to get my names and dates wrong, but there was in, during the Cuban Missile Crisis, a, a Soviet submarine commander who was given the order to use nuclear weapons, and there just happened to be another higher-ranking person on board who wasn't and who overruled who overruled him. And you know that little luck of history. You had the war games in the early 80s that the Soviets thought were a large-scale invasion. You had a meteor shower that you had Soviets decide not to retaliate, even though the, the machine said that there was this massive invasion coming in. Maybe maybe we just don't hear about them. All that, oh, that still happens. I hope not, but it feels like maybe maybe we um, went to the brink and have taken a step back from then.
1: Yeah, it's crazy when you think about it. And it also explains some of the possible Fermi scenarios. So. Your, your new book, the Fourth Age. I'm curious how you see the world changing. Why is now the fourth age?
0: Well, it's my own, you know, kind of structure, and it just coincidentally there are a lot of other fourth books coming out all at once. Uh, so mine, you know, I'm I'm sure it can be confusing to anybody who's trying to keep up with this. I like I said, I think technology is this trick that we learned to, to mu- multiply what we're able to do, and sometimes we discover a trick so important, so big that it just alters everything forever, and And I think three have been in the past, the acquisition of language 100,000 years ago, that's a technology that you kind of can't even imagine us without it, right? And then agriculture 10,000 years ago, and it isn't that agriculture was that big of a deal, but agriculture gave us the city and the city gave us a division of labor and the division of labor gave us prosperity. And so you had this like technological innovation that all of a sudden you had a prosperous world, you had extra extra cycles to do more than just survive. And then I think the third one happened 5,000 years ago, a, a giant coincidence. Two technologies came on the scene at exactly the same moment. The wheel and writing both came along 5,000 years ago. And I think that they're paired together. Uh, they're everything you need to have a nation state. And that's why 5,000 years ago, you can kind of set your watch by it. You had great empires just come out of the blue all over the world in Mesopotamia, Mesoamerica, the Indus, the Po. And, and so I argue that I think AI, whatever it is, it, and, and robotics, uh, are a fourth age. They're on par with things like language. And the reason I think that, you know, we, 25 years ago, the Mosaic browser came out. And if you had gone, and all, all the web is, is teaching computers to talk to each other. It doesn't have any smarts. All it is is a common protocol. So 25 years ago, we learned how to just make computers talk to each other. And, and we transformed society and created $25 trillion in wealth. And I mean, everything's different. And AI has the potential to make everybody smarter. Imagine if like, we all went to bed tonight and woke up with 15 extra IQ points each, all of us you know, that's what AI does is a person holding a tool that's empowered with AI is as smart as that tool. And I think if somehow, you know, we're, we're where we are on this planet because we're the smartest things on it. That's it. We're not fastest or the strongest or anything. We just happen to be the smartest. And if all of a sudden you make us
1: even smarter, I think that's I think it's big news. So why wasn't the internet the fourth age then? Um,
0: Really, in, in the grand scheme of things, I don't know that, that, I mean, you you can argue it, it's all arbitrary, but it, it let us do kind of a lot of things that we used to do. It, 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 make, it dropped the price of communication to zero, and that made starting a business cheaper. That made certain kinds of business transactions become possible, like eBay and Etsy and Uber and Airbnb and all of this, because all of these transactional costs were cut to zero. I mean, it was big like electricity was big or the, um, or Gutenberg and movable type was big. But I'm not sure I think that humanity is forever changed because of it. Whereas if we were all suddenly smarter, I can't even, that dwarfs my imagination of what we're going to do with that. If, if this simple act of connecting computers together did what it did, imagine connecting them all together and then making them smart, having them be smart and that making us smarter.
1: I wanted to take a quick time out to tell you guys about today's show sponsor, Carta. As a founder, investor, or startup employee, you know that most of the wealth in the tech industry, it comes from equity, it's not from salary. But how you manage equity, how we manage equity, it's broken. It can be complicated to figure out who owns how much of a startup, and to share that important information and documents between companies and VCs. And for VCs to see how investments are performing real time, that's incredibly important for raising your next fund. Many investors and companies still use spreadsheets, paper certificates, and slow-moving service providers to keep that kind of information on hand and to share with prospective investors. These tools and services that are used to manage equity, they're dated, they're slow, and it's funny given that VCs and CEOs are the ones creating the future. Picardo fixes the cap table equity management problem. They offer cap table management, valuations, full service fund administration, all in one platform. More than 600,000 employee shareholders from companies and VCs at firms like Slack, Coinbase, Flexport, August Capital, Founders Fund, all these guys and more, they use Carta to manage hundreds of billions of dollars in equity. To simplify how you manage equity, use Carta. Get 10% off today at carta.com syndicate. It'll help you with simplifying the cap table, which will make it easier for you to raise money as a startup and easier for investors to get on board. Carta.com syndicate. What about this as a metaphor, maybe for your next book? The first age was language, which is peer-to-peer communication. The second age was, uh, I think you said farming in cities. Now you have much closer peer-to-peer communication. Third age was writing, typing, and uh, writing and wheels, which allows you to have further out communication. And the internet is the fourth age, pure, full distance, instantaneous. I like it. You should write it. I should, but, but would don't call it beca- The
0: Fourth Age.
1: I'll call it The Fourth Age, the one that's better than Byron's book, yes, right? Yes, that's right. So
0: I at least have a chapter called The Fifth Age, so I'm, I kind of think we are part of a, a bigger story.
1: What's that bigger story?
0: Well, it seems to me that um, as long as we've kind of had people, we've people have dreamed of a, of a world without hunger and poverty and all of the rest. And... There was never enough of the good stuff to go around. And so people dreamed of these utopias, a word that means no place. It doesn't exist. It's just a dream. And I think that we're the first people that can actually deliver on it because we learned this trick. We can multiply what we're able to do. We can feed everybody. We can do all of the rest. And so then you have to say, well, what what comes next after that? Once When we all wake up in a world, we can't imagine being any better than the world we have today. Then I think you have to look up at the sky and and see, I think, a universe that looks like it has a lot of room for us to expand into. My favorite, the universe's big analogy is if you take a grain of sand and put it on your fingertip, and then you hold your fingertip out at arm's length and look at that piece of sand, it's blocking your view of 30,000 galaxies. So that tiny speck of sand is keeping you from seeing 30,000 galaxies beyond that. And every one of those galaxies has 100 billion planets. I mean, 100 billion stars. And so I would love to think someday there'll be a billion planets each with a billion people on them, all empowered to to achieve their, their maximum
1: potential. Someday. When is that? When would you give us a 50% chance of having some off-planet colony?
0: I don't know. It's discouragingly slow, isn't it? I you mean, know. if you would ask when we were in 1970, if you had asked that question, you would have would be there. By, I mean, you would have, you would not have guessed beyond 50 years later where we are now that we wouldn't have even been back to the moon.
1: Do we need another pissing contest? We had the U.S. And I don't Russia know. Maybe. Elon and Jeff.
0: Maybe. Maybe that's what we need. I don't know. I would love right now the weather say what could possibly go wrong like I know all kinds of you know we, we all know them but all of our eggs are in one celestial basket at this moment right this one what Carl Sagan called pale blue dot this is tiny you know we're we're alone adrift in the eternal night of space and all we really have is each other and that's it that's the beginning and end of our of, of where we are and, and it would be really nice if if we did begin to um, spread out and, and go elsewhere
1: what inspired you as a kid
0: you mean about technology and all the rest like
1: about technology you know, I mean Imagine Star Trek too Star Trek yeah I, re- I heard a quote
0: by Gene Roddenberry who said that in the future there will be no hunger and there'll be no greed and all the children will know how to read and I wondered if that was true and so that's really what started me on the path is I kind of wanted to find out like is that really true or does it just rhyme you know does it just sound good and that's what got me thinking about the future if you you know I have to watch, All future stuff, especially if it has to do with AI, because everyone asks me about it, everyone. And, you know, I go out and give talks on AI or whatever, and people say, oh, did you see Black Mirror last night? And, you know, so I have to watch all this stuff. And it's kind of like good news doesn't sell well. And, you know, there's no show called White Mirror, you know, that shows like all the positive things that technology can do for us. Do you know where they get the name, by the way, for that show?
1: I've heard the reference before yeah, on the show, but I don't it's, remember.
0: Oops. It's, uh, it's the, the black of your, of your mobile device, that shiny black. And so there's, you know, so there's all of this stuff. So I have to go see Elysium, you know, with Matt Damon, and I have to all these movies. And I, I used to just have like a bad attitude about it. I would sit there just stewing in my seat, thinking this isn't going to happen. I it just plays on people's fears. And and then I read a quote by Frank Herbert uh, who said, um, sometimes the purpose of science fiction is to keep the future from happening. And I said, ah, okay, I'm going to start thinking of these as cautionary tales. And so now I have much more peace with it. I can I can go and watch this stuff and and what have you. But if you say well, would some show about a positive humanity, would that a positive future, would that be interesting? And of course, that is the Star Trek universe. And that did inspire. It's not just me. You know, you talk to those people at, at NASA today and, uh, and and they say it was it was that. All of those things, you know, there's an X-Prize to make a, a tricorder because some time in the past there was a tricorder. You know, Uhura had a Bluetooth device in her ear and, you know, we built the Bluetooth device Uhura had. now, you know, we science fiction in many ways shapes the future because it, you know, shapes what we think is positive. And shapes what people get up and do. And so I would say for me, it was Star Trek.
1: And shapes what we try to avoid, which I think is incredibly important. Yeah. That's one of the issues I do have, though, with science fiction is it's part of the purpose of this podcast is people, in my opinion, create the future they envision. I think there's a lot of reasons why people are scared about the future. And a lot of those reasons come from Hollywood because mm-hmm. dystopia sells. I remember I heard somewhere they were doing a poll to see which which utopia that there were a couple of different options for the styles of utopia people most resonated with. And there were six different options, five utopias. And then one was like your life today. And universally people chose the life today because something seemingly hardwired inside us resisted that utopia, that too easy, that lack of purpose, that whatever it is. Do you think there's something there?
0: No, I i mean, I, I kind of don't. I mean, I think hungry people want food and I think poor people don't want to be impoverished. And I think people don't want to grow up in violence and they don't want survival to be their full-time job and they want to be educated and they want to have, you know, I started a website once called happy And it was for this very reason. I said, I want to report positive, upbeat news to be kind of a, a, you know, kind of be a yin to the yang of all the rest of the media so that I knew nobody was going to like make mine their only news site. What I wanted people to do was like consume the news wherever they want to do. And then right when they were at a point of despair, flip over to my site and and see the the other half of the equation. So we always tried to run stories. Like if, if an automotive plant did a big round of layoffs, we would find an automotive plant that was hiring a bunch of people and we would run that story because you know, otherwise you don't you don't get a full picture. And so I used to go on these shows and people would say, Why what makes people happy? And I spent a long time thinking about it. And in the end, I think people are happy to the extent they believe they control their circumstances, that they have agency in their own life, that they are not subject to to the whims and forces of others. And and you can only do that if you have some amount of good health and you have some amount of financial security and you have some amount of education and all of the rest. And so I think people very much want all of that and you have parts of the world where everyone has that and those people generally aren't miserable who, who live there um, you've got countries you know like um, Iceland has uh in a good year, they have no murders on that whole country, a whole island. In a bad year, they have like one or two. And um, and they have, you know, universal literacy. I mean, I'm not just extolling the virtues of Iceland, like in particular, there are places in the world where you have prosperity and literacy and happiness and all of the rest. And I don't know any reason the whole world can't be like that. And I don't know any reason to say people don't want that. I think everyone wants that.
1: I think so, too. I just thought it was worth bringing up. I know a lot of people, if you told them, OK, tomorrow uh, you don't have a job in you don't need a job i feel like a lot of people would feel lost
0: i don't know that that would ever happen but i mean there's even can, i can look out my window and, and and see right now and see 50 things that need doing from my uh, office window and uh and i'm sure once those 50 things are done i can spot a whole lot more i mean the, the world it used to take 90 percent of us to grow our food and so that was a full-time job for everybody and now in the west it takes two percent of us and the 98 percent are freed up to do more it's interesting because um in 1930 maybe Leonard Keynes wrote an essay and he said in hundred years, so now real GDP or real income will be eight times higher than it is now. And because of that, people will only work 15 hours a week. And lo and behold, he was right about almost everything. He got the economic number right. Maybe it wasn't eightfold, whatever it was, it was substantially more, X 5X, 6X in real dollars. Uh, and, and we hit it, exactly what he said. And yet we all still work the same number of hours. And, and so people ask the question, like, I have all these productivity tools, why am I still working so hard? Like everybody has probably asked that question. And the answer is... Um, You can actually work 15 hours a week, as long as you're willing to live like a middle-income person in 1930 did. In other words, you live in 600 square feet, you don't have air conditioning, you don't have medical insurance, you don't have a college degree, you grow your own food for the most part, you don't eat out, uh, you make a lot of your own clothes, and all the rest. And so if you kind of want that lifestyle, then you could work 15 hours a week and probably achieve that lifestyle. But what it turns out is we all wanted more than that. We all still want to work because you, you, you want other things now. And so even if we had to work less, all of a sudden, people would say, I'm just going to stay late at the nuclear fission plant because I want the latest hover car or whatever. Now, the good news is we're not totally materialistic because technology also freed up a lot of time at home, right? Like I don't have to haul up water from a well anymore. Well, I guess I never had to, but, and we, use that time. We don't work that time. We use that time to invent hobbies and so it seems like we we want to spend 40 hours a week or whatever your number is working productively and that number is going to stay the same no matter how wealthy we get
1: it's an interesting perspective do do humanity's desires scale linearly with humanity's means
0: that i think is
1: the central question
0: there may be no limit to our desires we, you know our desires may be inexhaustibly high
1: we better hope not that's a, that's always a formula for disaster right right so you've been you've been praised for the way that you run GigaOhm. I've heard it's a different type of media company. You guys have been pretty darn successful. I've actually published a couple articles there as well. But I'm curious on your thoughts on GigaOm, the state of the media industry, the state of the tech industry, where we're headed.
0: Well, we're our our mission is very very specific to the to our, to the moment in time. And so there's all this technology confronting enterprises, and even even CIOs, even people who their full time job is just to keep up with it, really can't in any meaningful way. It's so we live in a in a world where you know it's a cliché how fast everything's changing and technology you know like just as soon as you get used to the cloud there's the edge cloud and AI and AI on the edge i mean it just constantly changes and constantly new and so i our mission is simply to help enterprises make sense of that and so we try to take technology areas and kind of help people help people get oriented in them and understand what's going on so in that regard we're not actually a media company so much we're um, i mean we are and we aren't but our, our real mission is, is We publish research that enterprises use to make their technological technology investments more
1: impactful. So you guys are a little different than most media in terms of the business models, I would imagine. How do we fix that, though, for the media industry as a whole? It's the the ads and attention and um, surveillance type capitalism economy creates a I, lot of problems.
0: I hope and I may be crazy naive here, but with all of this talk uh, about fake news and you don't know what to believe and all of the rest, I like to think that in the end that's going to cause people to migrate back to brands. You know, I'll pay for the Wall Street Journal or the New York Times or whatever because I trust it and I want access to it and I'm I'm willing to pay for something that I can trust, and maybe we'll look back at that kind of free for all, where every all media was free, just as a transition period from one uh, kind of one set of technology to another. So I kind of think we're I think the problem I hope will sort itself out as people come to value credibility.
1: I would hope so as well, because that's one of the big problems we have right now. Everyone's incentivized to be as loud and obnoxious as possible. Yeah, and that creates that creates major problems. So we were talking a little bit about AI earlier. I know you've talked a bit about content. Conscious computers, conscious AI. Can you define a little bit the difference? What what is AI? What what's the difference between consciousness and intelligence? And do you think we'll get to conscious AI?
0: Wow. Okay, this actually I have, my I have favorite.
1: Doing like a one two three punch on questions. No, no
0: that's my favorite that. topic to talk about, frankly. So I have a podcast about AI, and the first question I ask everybody is, "What is it?" It's kind of a Rorschach test. Is that the right word? The no. block? question because there is no consensus definition. And so you kind of can't understand how people think of it. The reason there's no consensus definition is there's no consensus definition of intelligence. We don't know what it is. Interestingly, we don't have a definition that we all agree on what life is or death or any of the big stuff. I think that's kind of interesting. But regardless, everybody can agree we divide AI into two large buckets. One is uh, narrow AI, and that's What we know how to do today, and that's a computer program that can do one thing, like um, play chess, spot spam in your inbox, or what have you. It can do one thing, and we know how to do that. And when you hear Elon Musk or other folks say, I think AI is an existential threat, they're not talking about that. They're talking about the second bucket, and that is an artificial general intelligence. That's an AI that is as smart and versatile as a human. You can ask it, what should I get my spouse for Christmas? And then you could ask it, uh, what's uh, paint me a painting and write a poem and make tea or whatever. And it would do it. It would figure it out if it doesn't know how. And that's a technology we don't know how to build. And if you ask people in the industry when we'll have it, the answers vary from five to to 500 years, which is meaningless. It's like if you dropped your dry cleaning off and they said, it'll be ready in five to 500 days. It's like, it doesn't tell you anything useful at all. So the technology people are afraid of is this general intelligence. And that's the one we don't know how to build. Now put a pin right there for a moment. Consciousness is oh actually let me let me say something else if you were to ask, if when i ask people on my show do you believe we can build this general intelligence virtually everyone says yes and if you dig down as to why people in the bay area who work in ai almost all share a single premise and that is that humans are machines And so the logic is simple. You are a machine. Your brain is a machine. Your mind, whatever that is, is a machine, is mechanistic. And and nothing in you breaks the laws of physics. And so if you are nothing but a machine, then someday we'll build one. And when we build it, we'll make it better and better and better. That's it. And so I ask people, you know, do you think people are machines? And the vast majority on the show say, yeah, I mean, like, what else would we be? But what's interesting is when I was writing uh, The Fourth Age, My publisher who lives in New York, completely out of that world, my editor wrote in the margin, do you really think anybody honestly thinks that? And it's like everybody I know thinks that. So I put a survey up on my own website and I said, do you believe you're a machine or do you think you're an animal, which kind of a machine with life? Or do you think you're a human, which is some, an animal with something else? And only 15% of people say they're machines. So most of the world doesn't have this mechanistic reductionist viewpoint of, of humanity. And therefore, it's highly dubious, I think, that you can build a general intelligence unless we're machines. Now, there's also this idea of consciousness. Now, people say we don't know what that is. That isn't exactly true. We know exactly what consciousness is. We just don't know how it is that people are conscious. So what is it? It is the experience of being you. So you can feel warmth. A computer can measure temperature. Like think of the difference between those two things. A computer can measure temperature. You feel and experience warmth. Whatever that delta is, that's what consciousness is. Now, the challenge is, it's the the last great scientific question that we don't know how to ask. We don't know scientifically, and we don't know what the answer would look like. We don't even know what a scientific answer to that question would even look like. How is it that matter can experience the universe, can can experience it? And so there are a lot of theories that it's, fundamental, that it's universal, that it's it's everywhere, that everything has some amount of it. I mean, there are all kinds of, of theories, but none of them are even come close to satisfying any kind of st- scientific definition of proof. I mean, they're like speculations. So could a machine ever... Be- so I'm, I'm about to wrap up here. So we have these brains we don't understand. I mean, that's putting it nicely. Like if I were to say, what color was your first bicycle? Uh, and, and so you can answer that, even though nobody's probably asked you that forever. But if, there's no place in your brain where that stored like there's no bicycle icon in your brain and or the color of things is all stored here or anything so yeah and then we have the mind and the mind is all this stuff your brain does that seems like it shouldn't be able to do for instance you have a sense of humor comes from your brain your stomach doesn't have a sense of humor your liver doesn't have a sense of humor so why does your brain do these things like have emotions and all of that and then we have consciousness we don't even know how to even think about that, um, scientifically now. So again, Bay Area types to group them all in a bucket, uh, Say all of those things have to be mechanistic, and therefore we can build it. We don't have to understand it; we can build it because it's all just physics. But if you don't think that, if 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 you say no, there are too many unknowns. I'm not convinced we can build it. Then that's another viewpoint, a minority viewpoint, by the way, uh, among those in the AI world. I can only think of like three or four guests I ever had on the show out of eighty that said they didn't think it was possible to
1: build one. Well, I think I wouldn't say human beings are mechanistic. I would say that there is a lot about human beings that is mechanistic probably 99%. So what is
0: the 1% in your mind?
1: Conscious versus un- versus subconscious thought and subconscious actions. I think the conscious is what we experience. And the 99% is what your body's doing. It's the breathing. It's uh-huh. um, calming you down when you're sleeping. It's brushing your teeth without thinking about it. It's the things that you don't think about. But I think it's that 1% that makes us human. I was talking to an interesting neuroscientist. I think it was yesterday. They're
0: all interesting. I have They, are,
1: they that. are all interesting. I think we need more neuroscientists, in time, yeah. especially <laughs> Jesus, especially now. And we need them not optimizing, not optimizing the freaking ad's click through rates on Facebook. But that's a that's an entirely different story. I think I think the saying it's impossible is always a bad idea. It's also always a bad idea to say always. But I think assuming that the only way to create artificial general intelligence or consciousness is the human way is kind of like assuming the Earth is at the center of the solar system. It's incredibly ignorant and egotistical. I've got to imagine there's other ways it can be done as well.
0: In an infinitely large universe, aren't we technically, isn't every point technically the center, including us? I
1: don't think so. Oh, okay. I,
0: well, you I, I know, guess. the thing is, is that look, if for if, if people believe they have a soul or some non-corporeal part of them that survives their body or, or what have you, and that is them, then it's unlikely we can build that in any factory on the planet. Uh, but you don't have to appeal to the soul to have consciousness be something that is not replicatable. Um there's a phenomenon known as emergence. It's really fascinating. It's when the whole of something has characteristics none of the parts have, like your sense of humor. You know, none of your cells have a sense of humor. How is it that you do? Um and there are different kinds of emergence, maybe then maybe there's something called strong emergence. It's debated. Well anyway, there are other theories of consciousness that would make it very hard to instantiate it into a machine. But I, some people anyway,
1: go ahead. I was going to say I would definitely agree with that. And I, I whenever a people say something is definitely doable or easy i always think they're ignorant huh. it's always hard
0: that if you ever hear like the old i forget who said this the old anyway go ahead i'm sorry
1: everything's always harder it takes longer it costs more money and yeah. people always over assume what they're able to do that said the the one thing where i think about agi potentially is uh, oppenheimer when they invented the atomic bomb i want to say the day before they were having a conversation on if it was even possible and one of the main guys said i don't think it will ever be doable in the next day but a boom we are. Uh, we had the bomb, so, or we had the technology to make it happen. Sometimes there are this those quantum leaps, those black swans Well,
0: leaps. I will say this. If it is possible, it is inevitable. I mean, whatever is possible scientifically will eventually do because scientific progress continues to advance
1: not necessarily here but yes right 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 it's a it's really interesting when you think about it that way and then we can get into the multi-worlds questions and we can go we can go a lot of different ways on this and i think a lot of those would be would be completely different full podcast so and I know I know you're a real busy guy, and I wanna I wanna be respectful of the time as well. What is the one technology or trend that you're most worried about these days?
0: Well, I will say uh, probably I mean I would be tempted to say uh, bioterrorism. I mean I can get a CRISPR kit and chain, and genetically engineer stuff at home for ninety nine dollars for real. And then I might have said um, I don't know there are a lot, but I I personally think an easy one is um, privacy because we all have had privacy in the past because. Of the sheer number of us you just can't follow every person you can't listen to every phone conversation and all the rest and i th- think that um, the kinds of tools we build to do very good things like, you know, look through medical journals for potential new treatments for illnesses can also be used to uh, make a profile of you. And so we can now listen, an AI could listen to every phone conversation. It could read every email because AI can read lips now, as well as a human, like every camera uh, that doesn't even have audio can record everything you say, facial recognition, it can put it all together and make a profile of you. And then it can, you know, shape your behavior as we see being done around the world in places. Um, so I think a technology, it's a technology that the price of liberty is eternal vigilance, one of the founders said. And I think that we just need to be really careful that we, as, as the capabilities to watch everyone comes into being, we legislate that we can't watch everyone because that's not really kind of a world we want to live in.
1: Minority report should be mandatory in schools. Yeah. yeah, I think I think sci-fi. Actually, I think sci-fi in general would be an interesting thing to force students to study. We can get rid of a lot of. There's a lot of classics that are great for. They're great for learning about how to be a great writer. But I think I think a lot of sci-fi novels could do a better job of teaching us how to build a great society.
0: My uh, June Burke was my ninth grade high school English teacher in 1983-84, and uh, we did science fiction all year. And I remember that year so vividly. We it was read 1984 your one too, right? Absolutely, we read Brave New World. We read all all of them, and those have stuck with me my whole life. I mean, I don't care what happened in Madame Bovary, but but man, those those things we read
1: in ninth grade those shaped me. Absolutely, shout out to teachers. Now, one one last one before we start to wrap up. What technology outside of what you've talked about today are you most excited about, and why?
0: Um, maybe nanotech. Just because it shout out to nanotech because it doesn't get as much love. But it turns out certain materials, when you deal with them kind of at a microscopic level, take on amazing new properties. And we're just learning. And and there are thousands of nano products on the market already. But there, I think breakthroughs in material sciences are going to give us solar cells that, you know, you can paint on a wall and have a solar powered wall. They're going to give us materials that change color as they get hot so that you can tell when it's about to blow up. I mean, just do all of these like really crazy cool things. And so I would probably see nano or, um, yeah.
1: Yeah. Nanotech is incredibly interesting. If you guys are interested, disruptors.fm search for graphene. We have one of the leading graphene companies, one of the leading researchers. It's uh, it's super interesting. Now, last question, if you had to leave people with one thing before you tell them where to find you a quote, a call to action. What would it be and why?
0: Um, well, I, I don't know. I would say that the, we, 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 we used to be barbarians. And there was a point arguably 100,000 years ago when we got down to just a few hundred mating pairs of humans. That was it. I and mean, when we were an endangered species. And somehow we managed to break out of that. Somehow we managed to build a world of civilization where we have laws, we have human rights, and we have all of these, these things where we progressively extend the, the circle of who we regard as like us it's everyone hopefully um to to get to that point in, in our long arc of history and then to somehow think the future is bleak I think defies reason respectfully I, I submit this that we we are were evolved to be a timid species like I somebody said I don't know who but some smart person said that it, it was better on our ans- uh, to our, for our ancestors to see a rock and think it was a bear and run away than to see. A bear, and think it was a rock, and just hang out. And so we became very skittish about the world, and it served us well, and it got us to where we are. And and I, I kind of think it's helpful to just just recognize that's our bias, that's our built-in bias, and and to know that it's not necessarily rational. It's just how we happen to be, and that a better world really is possible.
1: And we're all related, so let's stop being let's stop being dicks and having racism and borders and problems with. Others. I think I think that's a I think that's a good takeaway for people. Byron, this has been a, this has been a really fun one. I I'm, had a
0: great time. I'm glad you
1: did. And I, I like it. You have not everyone has a sense of humor, but you've got a solid sense of humor. I think it's somewhere from the stomach, right? There but, you go. Uh, right. Where's the best place for people to find you, learn a little bit more about you and the books?
0: Um, I'm the easiest person in the world to find. So my name is Byron Reese, B-Y-R-O-N-R-E-E-S-E, and I'm just Byron Reese on Twitter, on all social media. It's my email address, Byron Reese at Gmail. I'm like really easy to
1: find. And Byron Reese.com. That's what happens when you're into the technology industry early. Hit them up, guys. Check out the book if if it's interesting. It sounds like a fun one. And uh, yeah, thanks for coming today, Byron. And uh, yeah, happy Thanksgiving, guys. This is when we're recording it and you'll hear it a bit later. But yeah, cheers. If you want more of The Disruptors, you can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or go to disruptors.fm where you'll find tons of audio and video interview stories with leaders in the fields of genetics, cryptocurrency, longevity, AI, space, VR, and much, much more. You can also follow me on Twitter at Matt Ward.io. If you enjoyed the show, please leave a quick review on iTunes at disruptors.fm/slash iTunes to help more people discover the podcast and help us make a bigger impact.